You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, and you're listening to New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Richard Kent about the recent NCAA rule change that paved the way for student-athletes to receive financial compensation. Richard is an attorney and an expert on the subject, and I hope listeners enjoy learning about how college sports, specifically college basketball, are changing. Richard, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Great, Caleb. um, I'm really happy that you asked me. Of course. And, you know, before, before jumping into the topic, I was just wanted to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in the world of college sports. Sure. I'm a graduate of Rutgers College and Boston College Law School. I was a litigator for many years, but I also had uh, a few, uh, more than a few feet into the sports world. I've done uh, color commentary for Yale basketball. I've been representing NCAA men's and women's college basketball coaches for about seven years. And I've just, uh, let's see, I've written, well, I've written 11 books, uh, six of them on sports, two on Roger Federer, two on women's college basketball, and two on men's college basketball. So for today, the the focus that I want to have is on NIL, name, image, and likeness. And I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about what this is and the uh, the recent rule changes that have just had such a significant impact on college sports. Sure. Uh, there was a case called Alston versus the NCAA, which was pending out in the Ninth Circuit, which is the California federal system. And my partner and I, my partner in sports college coaching representation had a feeling that the NCAA was going to mess up again and take an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which it did and lost the case nine to nothing. The U.S. Supreme Court decided the case with Justice Kavanaugh, who played JV basketball at Yale, writing a blistering opinion uh, about the NCAA and everything the NCAA had done, including Mark Emmert, the president, earning $3.5 million a year, and many college coaches earning upwards of $10 million a year off the backs of college student-athletes. So basically what the Alston decision tells us 
is that college student athletes, not football, not basketball, everything, are entitled under the appropriate circumstances to additional educational benefits. Those are the key words, additional educational benefits. And basically, when that ruling came out, state legislatures around the country, ruling came out in late May of 21, state legislatures around the country rushed to enact what we call name, image, and likeness bills with the football-centric states, namely Alabama and Tennessee and, and stretching up to Michigan, rushing to get their bills in early for this reason. It would be, and it was going to be, everybody prophesized, a huge recruiting advantage to have the universities in your school, in your state, be a position to offer money for name, image, and likeness. So these statutes started to arise throughout the country during the first, second, and third weeks of July. As you can imagine, the statutes in the uh, more football-centric areas, mostly the SEC, were more liberal than others. But most of the statutes did have these two, these key concepts. One, there's got, it can't be pay for play. There's got to be a quid pro quo. In other words, the college student athletes have to do something for the money that they're going to receive, not from the university, because in 2021, when this happened, the state statutes eliminated the universities from being involved. Now, that's been changed as we sit here in May of 2023. At least two states, Alabama and Tennessee, as you can imagine, permit the universities to be involved. But let's flash back to 21. So the universities can't be involved. We don't want student athletes supporting uh, a brand which may be antithetical to the brand that the university is sponsoring. So if you're a Nike school, you don't want kids to be sponsoring Adidas or Under Armour. And also um, uh, drug, alcohol, and gambling products are excised in most states. So the statutes come into being. We know that the uh, schools can't be involved. And what happens is companies start to form, including a company which I'm involved in called Sunil, S-A-N-I-L, Student Athlete Name, Image, and Likeness. And the companies serve as the middlemen between the boosters, donors to universities, and the student athletes. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, we do the work at Penn State University. We did the work starting in 21 at Penn State, and we met with several key boosters. Uh, we got their names from various sources, and the key boosters decided to use us, but not. there's no such thing as ex exclusivity. So there could be five, three, eight, whatever collectives at various universities. So we interfaced, usually by Zoom, because it was during COVID, with uh, these boosters, and we created what was known as a general fund or a student-athlete-specific fund. In a general fund, the boosters would donate money and give us discretion as the individuals who ran the collective to parcel out the money to student-athletes, you know, under, under whatever subjectivity we were going to utilize. And that usually involves some consultation with coaches or they were student athlete specific. 
In other words, we want the goalie on the lacrosse team, the uh, the point guard on the women's basketball team, and so on and so forth to receive the money. Now, in its embryonic stages in July, August, September of 21, it really wasn't out of control. But two years later, it's the Wild West, and it's a bidding war, especially out of the transfer portal, which has been revised to the extent that on a first transfer, Caleb, you don't have to sit out a year. So you could theoretically play basketball at Rutgers on January 12th and suit up at Michigan that you've transferred to on January 14th for a game on January 15th. So what's going on at the big schools is you've got a thousand kids in men's basketball, more in uh, fewer, but still a big number in women's basketball. And you've got bidding wars going on um, for, for these student athletes. So the rich are getting richer. And one phrase that's being used is that money that was given under the table before is now put on the table right now. Can you walk us through what that recruiting process looks like and how the recruiting process has changed from the times before NIL? Sure. You've got two different recruitment mechanisms. You've got high school kids who you're recruiting, and that process in football and basketball could start as early as the 10th grade. And you've got the transfer portal. And these big schools, the power six schools, I'm including the Big East in that because they're the most powerful college basketball conference for my money right now. These power six schools uh, are seeing, you know, they may be losing a kid to the NBA, a one and done or a two and done. And they, they want to pick up an immediate impact kid. You know, it could be a kid from a mid-major who just blossomed. So you, you could have a Michigan looking at a kid from Towson University who's a 21-point scorer and taking that kid. You've got um, Northwestern this year taking one of the darlings from the Princeton basketball team, Ryan Langborg, because you, you can't play an extra year in the Ivy League, which is archaic, and that's probably going to change right now. The Ivy League is in the dark ages as far as I'm concerned on all of this stuff. So you've got Langborg, who's going to suit up next year for Northwestern, and you've got a kid, another kid from Princeton, Jalen Llewellyn, who's going to be playing for Michigan. He'll be the lead point guard, and Langborg will be the lead shooting guard. This never would have happened before. And you, you mentioned the, the quid, quid pro quo. Uh, so, so what does it actually look like? You know, the the, the boosters or the, you know the collective or company identify players that they uh, want to give money to. Uh, they can't they can't do it directly through the school. Uh, was it? What does it actually look like? Is it through a signing? Is it through something else? Uh, what does that look like? Well, you you started the sentence with quid pro quo. It can't be conditioned on performance, and it, so that's not pay for play. It can't be pay for play, and there's got to be some element of return by the student athletes. Let's say if Joe Smith, a donor for Rutgers, is is going to donate money and he owns a car dealership in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the student athlete or athletes to whom he's going to donate are going to do Instagram posts or a, a signing at a table on a couple of Saturdays in September or October at the car dealership. So that's the quid pro quo. How do you see this affecting the just general landscape uh, for competition in basketball uh, specifically, and then maybe in more general sports? Is, is it impacting... 
uh, how certain schools are able to perform. Are other schools that previously weren't that good suddenly able to be much more competitive because they have uh, more money? That is the case, but w- we can also look at a school like Fairleigh Dickinson, who defeated Purdue in the first round of the tournament. Fairleigh Dickinson, having chosen uh, something that very few schools do on the D1 level, Tobin Anderson, who was a Division II coach, and they hired him as a Division I coach. He restructured uh, their roster. He brought in some kids from a highly successful Division II school, and, and they beat a one seed, Purdue, in the tournament, which which is unheard of. So they got richer by the transfer portal. But, you know, the, the, the bigger schools, Michigan, as I just mentioned, with Llewellyn, Northwestern will be stronger next year with Ryan Langborg. So you, you, you've got schools, uh, you, UConn lost a couple of kids. UConn lost a player to St. John's because he's probably going to be a lead guard at St. John's. UConn has a couple of guys, including Andre Jackson, who were looking at uh, entering the draft. They've hired agents, but they haven't, ha- they've hired certified agents so that if they're if their uh, takeaway from the NBA, I think on or before May 27th, I believe, is that they're unlikely to be drafted, they'll probably go back. And, you know, U- UConn is looking for contingency plans right now. I mean, I, I was with Danny Hurley last night, the UConn mm-hmm. coach, and Tom Moore, their lead recruiter, and we were talking about that stuff. You mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the president of NCAA making three and a half million dollars, some coaches making upwards of 10 million. Uh, can you give an impression of how much players, stars uh, are, are going to be making through NIL uh, this coming year? Uh, and not just stars, but just, you know, a uh, uh, maybe someone who's a, who's a good player at a smaller school or a, uh, you know, a backup at a pretty good school. Yeah. So we're looking at the lead players at at power five schools in basketball, a kid that's going to be a starting point guard making in the 250 to $350,000 range. We're looking at a kid who's going from one mid-major to start at another mid-major in the 25 to $50,000 range. And in women's college basketball, and you look at it, and I don't know any specifics about LSU, but you look at how that roster was restructured you know, with Angel Reese coming over from Maryland, there's female college basketball players making upwards of 100,000. And with these new rules in place, do you think that it's going to result in a greater emphasis on individual branding, individual playing versus uh, more team play? Because college basketball is such a, a team sport. Could you see it just starting to look more like the NBA as time goes on? Well, I think what you're uh, really insinuating or, or want to talk about is whether or not there's going to be a locker room issue. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Is is, is there going to be in and there's been a study done already by a group out in California. And the feeling is or at least the feedback has been that only in about five percent of these situations uh, have have there been locker room issues created. So I think it's pretty it seems to be pretty much under control that way. And, you know, I, I know you stated that this was that this came out of a, a court ruling. And I, I'm wondering, you know, do you have a sense of how NCAA leadership has viewed this? Have they, have they ultimately embraced the new rule change? I imagine that they are probably able to keep stars more. Uh, you know, what, what, what sense do you get about how people uh, generally have, have perceived this new change? 
well, you used NCAA uh, as a result of this. I don't know if it's a condition precedent, but it's certainly close to one. Mark Emmert had to step down, and the NCAA hired Charlie Baker, who was the governor of uh, Massachusetts and a former basketball player at Harvard. So the the NCAA had to react that way because I don't think they were terribly happy with uh, Mark Emmert's tutelage on on this whole process. Basically, the key word for the NCAA is they abdicated. They did nothing and they and they sat and watched the state legislatures put together bills. And there needs to be federal legislation. I have I have met uh, by Zoom with Senator Tuberville's uh, office in Alabama and Senator Joe Manchin's office in West Virginia because they're trying to co-author some federal legislation which would provide for uniformity. In addition to uh... A, call, a high school player's option to go and play in, in on a college basketball team. There's also developmental league teams out there like G League uh, Ignite. Uh, I'm wondering how uh, the relationship between uh, player, you know, how you've seen the relationships between these sorts of organizations change. Is there uh, more of a move away from these sorts of organizations towards college basketball? Did this save college basketball in a way? I think they're going to get hurt a little bit because if kids can make the same dollars um, in in college, why go to the G League? Why go to Ignite? Uh, you know, make your 150 grand and then hope to get drafted, or you know, hope to get a two way contract uh, with the NBA. And do, do you see any downsides to the new rules? I, you, you mentioned that there's a push for 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 uniformity and. Uh, for, for these rules, um, you know, what what are you hoping to see to to just make things easier? I'm hoping there will be uniformity. I'm hoping there will be federal legislation. But if you and I had this conversation in two years, we're going to see we're going to see two new elements involved. We're going to see there's a case in the uh, Philadelphia uh, federal system in which student athletes have sued for the right to be deemed employees of the university and to get paid the same way that, let's say, a football player would get paid the same way as a kid working in the library at, uh, at, 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 a, at, a, at a school for this reason. The, the football or basketball player is spending 30 hours a week doing this, no different from what the kid in the library is doing, uh, is being forced to tailor his or her course schedule to be consistent with the practice schedule of the football or basketball team. So why shouldn't they get the 16 or $18 an hour? So that's number one. And number two, there's no doubt in my mind that at the Power Five level, with the billion-dollar TV contract for an entity like the Big Ten, you're going to see revenue sharing uh, for the student-athletes. Do I know the number? No. It could be 8%. It could be 12%. It could be in that range. So if there's a billion-dollar TV deal, the student-athletes may end up parceling out $100 million. College basketball and, and and all all college sports really are are so international. Players from from all over other countries, uh, you know, every continent come and play uh, in college sports. Uh, how how does uh, a, a different nationality or different citizenship impact a player's ability to get paid under NIL? Excellent question. So kids are here on a student visa. Under the student visa, not permitted to get paid in this country. The first example of a workaround, that's the dispositive word right now, workaround, was by um, a, a Kentucky 
and John Calipari with a player named Oscar Toshibwe. And Oscar Toshibwe got his NIL money. It's my understanding. I didn't work on this at all. While the team took a trip to the Bahamas last August. So you can be paid outside of the United States. Examples that I've seen in my own business model are kids from Canada putting up billboards in Canada for an entity or a company owned by a booster in the United States for the school they go to and advertising the product or the person's name on the billboard and getting paid in Canada, opening a bank account in Canada and getting paid. That's interesting. So, so there's tons of, of, of different, just incredibly creative workarounds that you can always do. I'm sure people will find new and more, and more creative uh, ways to, to go about finding ways to pay players. Uh, you, you mentioned the sort of the, the you know, the, the big six uh, leagues and how they are, uh, you know, really dominating. Uh, how do the small, more of like the mid-majors, how are they competing? Is this, uh, is this going to harm them or are they finding other ways to make this work? Some mid-majors, and I'm going to call them more low-majors than mid-majors, are advertising as follows. Come here, play for two years, put up big numbers, and we, you didn't get recruited by a Power 5, Power 6 out of high school, but you will after your sophomore year. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it, there's almost like a uh, a two divisions inside D1 itself that that is maybe over time might become clearer in the way in which players go about things. And, and, you know, I'm wondering, is it the case that, you know, the best, you know, the best kind of classic blue bloods are the, are the ones that are doing the best at fundraising, or are there some schools that are just blowing others out of the water when it comes to fundraising for, for college players? Both. I mean, you, you, you saw Rick Pitino leave Iona and he had vowed to stay at Iona, uh, didn't have to travel too far, traveled over to St. John's. He can still live He's got a house on Wingfoot Country Club. He can still live there and play golf there. But there's a really wealthy booster at St. John's, a guy that owns vitamin water, I believe. And listen, without him, you're not going to see Rick Patino moving over from my own St. John's. And you're not going to see uh, St. John's already signed a couple of kids this week. You're, you're just not going to see that happen. So it, it's it's the big it's either one or two huge boosters or a cadre of boosters who put up five, ten, twenty-five thousand dollars each. And, and is there anything else uh, that we haven't discussed? You know that you see co- sort of coming down the pike as, as far as ways in which college sports is going to change. Uh, you, you mentioned that it, that it's you know it's the wild west. Uh, you know it, it, anything unexpected that you that you think uh, could happen or something that could really shake up how things are already operating. Well, the numbers are going to get higher for the NIL and the numbers of kids entering the transfer portal is going to proliferate. So, you know, it's probably going to be 10% more kids in the portal and whatever the aggregate NIL money is right now in May of 23, it's going to be 25% more in May of 24. So that, you know, that that's almost a given. And I know you you, you talked to so many coaches. Um, I, I I'm wondering, is there a, a general opinion that coaches seem to have on NAL? Uh, a feeling that that maybe this is good or bad? Are they trying to? You know, I, I imagine you're an 18, 19 year old kid. You come in in there, and someone's offering you a million dollars that could turn turn your life around. Maybe you start behaving behaving poorly with that money. Is there is there uh, any concern, worry that you see when you when coaches talk? Let's. Talk about three coaches who don't coach anymore because of this. Um, Jay, Jay Wright, Villanova, 
Roy Williams at North Carolina and Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. They won't say this on the record, but I'm pretty sure that if the transfer portal and NIL hadn't happened, they might still be coaching. Let's put it this way. Interesting. Interesting. And, you know, do, do you see what impact do you see the NIL, these rule changes having on the NBA? Are players going to spend spend more time in college or do you think that the number that the potential offers that the NBA can give to a star are just so great that it wouldn't really matter? You're a first rounder. You're going to the NBA. If you're an early to mid second rounder, you're probably going to NBA. You're going to hesitate maybe late second round or free agency and stay in college. I mean, that's that's pretty close to reality. Uh, my last question is, who's going to win next year, men's and in women's? Well, let's start with women's, because I I think like in the old days when it was UConn and Tennessee, next year it's going to be UConn and LSU. No reason to play this season. Just play that game in Cleveland whenever you want. That'll be the championship. With the men, it's too early with the portal, but I would be stunned based on how the Big East performed last year and how they're performing in the portal if you didn't see I'm not going to say they're going to win it, but if you didn't see on the final weekend, at least one, if not two, of Creighton, Xavier, UConn, Villanova, and Marquette, because Villanova's gotten a lot stronger in the portal. Well, Richard, uh, thank you so much for being guest in the New Books Network. Um, it was uh, great to talk to you about NIL and college, how college sports are changing. I'm sure sure there will be a, you know, a lot of new changes to come in the future, uh, and uh, we'll talk to you again to see uh, if... Uh, if, if a new law gets passed, what, what, what that will look like. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure.